0: Hey friends. It's so good to see you all. I got to tell you, I was really, we missed last week, we were bringing our oldest to college and emotionally, I'm not going to ask you all to hug me, but it feels really good to be around so many people that I love because this week has been rough like rough, not for our college kids so much, you know, he's having the, the time of his life, but uh, it's just really good to see you all, and I'm so grateful to be here with you. Uh, we have had the privilege of walking out this series called Women of the Bible, and it has been so rich, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you've missed it, I hope that you'll go back uh, and, and walk through what we've walked through and, and just take time in learning about Mary Magdalene and about Esther, and today we're going to look at the book of Ruth And we're going to spend time focusing on what God has for us to learn there. Uh, There's a lot. I had 113 pages of notes originally, but because I love you so much, we're not not going to read all of them. Okay. I care about you a lot. We might, we'll go, I'll I'll take care of you. All right. Um, We're going to start at the beginning in Ruth 1, but I was a history teacher. And again, none of you have taken me up on my offer to just sit down over coffee and talk about history, but because I have you here, we're going to walk through a few of the details that I think in context help us understand a little bit more about this book of the Bible before we dive in. So let's take a moment. Bear with me. Uh, The first one is that the book of Ruth is only 85 verses in four chapters. It is a tiny but mighty little book in the Bible. It is precious. And I will tell you the temptation will be for you to just read through it in one sitting. Do not do that. Walk through it. Chapter by chapter, or even a few verses at a time, and we're gonna, you're gonna learn why in just a few minutes. Um, next, it is one of only two books of the Bible named after a woman. What is the other one? Esther. Esther. I'm so proud of you. You listened last week. Um, the The book of Ruth is the only book of the Bible named after a non-Jewish person. Ruth was a Moabite from Moab. We're gonna talk about that more, but important that you know. It's also the only book of the Bible named after a direct descendant of Jesus, someone in in the lineage of Jesus, which matters a lot. We want to pay attention to that. Lastly, the book of Ruth, based on what scholars say, would have taken place within the context of Judges chapter 10, but it's its own book of the Bible, which, again, we should infer that that means that we want to pay attention because there was so much valuable stuff in it that it wasn't just held there. It was put into its own book. Uh, We're going to talk about all of that today. Uh, Augustine, he is a theologian, said that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. This means that in the Old Testament, there are truths of the New Testament, these seeds, these predictions that anticipate what is to come. And the book of Ruth is full of these. And I know I've already said it, But there is so much goodness in this tiny little book, and I wish we had days and weeks to sit down and pour through my 113 pages of notes. But today we're going to buckle up, buckle up, and we're going to go through um, some of the highlights that I think, not only for this time and season that we're in as a world, but as followers of Jesus, what we can take from this that might be most important for this moment in time. So we're going to go to Ruth 1. We're going to read it like students. We're going to sp- um, spend some time focusing on the who, what, and when of this book, Ruth 1, 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the, name, the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Aphrodites from Bethlehem, Judah. That just means like they were Rapid Cityans from the Black Hills, South Dakota. That's just telling us, I don't wanna overwhelm you or, or make you feel like you don't know what's going on. That's just telling us where they're from. Uh, they went to Moab and lived there. Let's keep going. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. That's five verses, and a lot has happened, right? First, we see who the story is about. We started out with six people listed, and half of them are already dead. Come on, Ruth. Are you taking notes? Do you have notes? You might want to. Uh, Names matter, and I want to press in on that for a moment, uh, because we're going to go through the list of, of people in this story that we just heard about. Uh, but I think it's important for us to consider that most of the time, you're probably named after somebody or something, maybe uh, maybe a city or a family member. Often names matter. Sometimes it's something that your parents hope for you, Right? They name you a name that they're hoping uh, might turn into something really amazing. A lot of times in in Bible times, they're named after family members, or maybe parents are trying to breathe something into that child's life. It's also circumstances surrounding the birth. For instance, when Isaac and Rebecca had twins, they named the first one Esau, because Esau means Harry, which I think is kind of a bummer, because what if he had a shirt on and nobody would have even had to have known? But there you go, naming him Harry. His brother Jacob, born right after him, was named Jacob because Jacob means heel grabber, and Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel as he was born. Another example, less spiritual, is Darth Vader. Do we have any Star Wars fans in here? Okay, a few, oh. My Titus is a huge Star Wars fan, so I'm trying to get on board, ugh. Uh, Darth Vader means dark father, and I'm, from somebody looking from the outside in, how did Luke not know, right? <laughs> Again, I've not seen the movies, so I can't say. But that's another one, an example of, like, context. Let's take a look at the six names of the people that we talked about. Elimelech, my God is king. Can you imagine what his parents hoped for this child? When every time he would share his name or somebody would say his name, it would have been a testimony to their God. How powerful is that? Naomi means pleasant. Malon and Kilion, ugh. Sick and dying. What bummers, right? That. Oh, man. We, we don't have all the details, but I'm hoping that was because maybe that happened before and the parents weren't, you know, anyway. Uh, Orpa means back of neck. That's going to come into play in a little bit. Ruth means friend or friendly. So we know who is in the story. Let's take a look about when it was written. What we know from uh, the scripture that we read was it was written in the days when the judges ruled. And if you've ever studied the book of Judges, you know that it was kind of a hot mess. And I'm going to put a verse up here, Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It sounds a little bit like today or even just being a parent. Um, It's not a bright and shining moment for, for God's people. And this is the backdrop that Ruth happens in. Doing whatever they want, living however they feel, it's a mess. The people of God have lost their minds. There's corruption in the government. Priests are taking bribes. It's not even safe for a woman to walk down the street in her own town, not in a foreign land, but in God's land. God's people were up and down in the sin cycle, from sin and loss to repentance and restoration. This is in the book of Judges. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, God had predicted this to his people. But the thing about people is we, we may know, but we don't always do, right? Speed limits, deodorant in the summer, <laughs> you know, brushing our teeth twice a day. We know, but we don't always do. God had told them that if they obey him, he would help them prosper. But if they did not, there would be famine. And here we are, Ruth 1. The stages of the sin cycle look like this, and I just want to give you a picture of it because it's going to come into play. The first stage of the cycle would be rebellion, an action or process of resisting authority, living your way, not God's. The second was retribution, punishment for a wrong. Repentance is the third stage, the action of repenting, the verb of repenting, sincere regret or remorse. And the fourth was restitution, restoration of something lost or stolen to its rightful owner. And by the time we get to the book of Ruth, we see that we are in stage two of this cycle. And what does that look like? The end of verse one says there's a famine in the land. So where is the land? There are two specific places we're going to go to. The first was the land of Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means the house of bread. And what we know because there's a famine is that there is no bread in the house of bread. When there was a famine at this time, the Israelite people, God's people, knew that it was a time to reflect reflect and repent, to examine their hearts, and to trust God to provide. But what does this man from Bethlehem do? Let's take a look again. In the days where the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So the Moabites are in Moab, about 50 miles away. It's lush, it's green, it's beautiful. But the Moabites are a branch of the family tree that Israel was totally embarrassed by. They didn't want anything to do with them. The Moabites were descendants of Lot, which if you read in the Old Testament, you should go back if you don't know, or again, we can sit and have coffee and talk about it. Uh, They they were wild. They were descendants of Lot, and they were uh, idol worshipers, child sacrificers, and God had set a strict boundary to his people. Whatever you do, stay away from Moab. A question that I want to ask us before we go further is what is your Moab? Elimelech found a grave where he sought a home. He was seeking his livelihood and he ended up losing his life. Famine came and Elimelech, my God is king, ran. He would have known that it was a time to repent and grow deeper in his relationship with the Lord and to lead his family to do the same. But he didn't. I wonder if he would have been afraid if his children were sick and dying. Maybe he worried about whether or not he could take care of them. And he panicked. What would you do? What is your Moab? Where do you go in a time of famine when you're waiting on God to move? And life is hard and life is scary. Where do you go? Who do you run to? Maybe you don't run. Maybe, maybe you just stay where you're not supposed to stay. What is the place that it's maybe easier to escape to or numb out or drown out or drink out? I think we all probably have a few Moabs during our lifetime that we have to run from or that we should run from. One of my biggest actually was something that started all the way back in high school. It feels like forever ago, we're not gonna go there today. I was dating a boy from a few towns over. I was from a very small town. So everything was a few towns over if you didn't wanna just hang out with people you were related to. So that's, that's how that was. Um, he was well known, he was well liked, and we dated for a while before he became just really exhaustingly abusive in every possible way. I had deserted my friends. I wasn't hanging out with them anymore. I had made him my whole world, so I didn't feel like I had anybody to turn to or anywhere to go. I felt stuck. It was a Moab. It was a place that I uh, knew that I shouldn't be, but I didn't know how to leave. Maybe if I stayed, I could help him change. Maybe if I fix it all myself, then everything would be okay. I felt stuck, I felt stuck, I felt stuck. I'm really bummed to tell you that this lasted until I went to college. Um, Did you catch in the text that Elimelech and his family were only going to go to Moab for a short while, but we find in the text that by the time his sons had died, they'd been there for 10 years. That was me. I was in this way longer than I thought I would be. And you know what helped me get out of it? To go back to where I needed to be. It was a friend. Her name is Kelly, uh, and I think she's one of the kindest gifts that the Lord has ever given me. I have a picture of us because that's us. We're babies in college. Uh, and then this is us this past summer. So every summer we drag our families uh, to Kansas City and we go eat barbecue and hang out and talk forever while they just sit and wait for us. But it's a lot of fun. Um, and I love her dearly. Uh, Kelly is incredible. She was the first person in my life in all of those years of dating this boy that sat me down and told me, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to look that way. It's not supposed to feel that way. And I'm going to help you get out of it. And she did. Uh, I dumped him. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I had to be reminded over and over again that it was right. But I had to go home and not home the physical location, but back to the place I knew I should be. And I think it's easy for us to read those first five verses in Ruth and think that Elimelech, what a ding-dong, right? Like, he's so terrible. Uh, But I think we're a lot like this guy. Pressure comes, finances aren't good, relationships are in the toilet, and we just try to fix it on our own. What is your Moab? Do you know who the Kelly of this story was? It was Ruth. Ruth the friend. Ruth is a Moabite, and if you study the book of Ruth, and every time it says, Ruth the Moabite, and you circle it, you're going to realize, wow, they called her that a lot. And that wasn't really a good thing. They were reminding you of who she was, and it, it, it was supposed to remind us of where she came from. Uh, it's like saying, Pastor Chris the Vikings fan, okay? <laughs> Some of you are Vikings fans, and I love you very dearly, but I couldn't miss the opportunity to take that. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so Ruth... You're really great, Pastor Chris. Um, She's a woman, she's a Moabite, she's a daughter-in-law, someone who in that time and place would not have been of much value to those around her. But here we are a few thousand years later saying her name. And I just want to take a moment to remind us that that is a good God who sees us and loves us and believes in us and is with us. So, so far in this story, we have a family of six whittled down to three Three single females with nothing to their name and no hope for the future. But fortunately, the story doesn't end here because it would be a really big drag if it did, right? Uh, In the midst of disobedience and leaving the land of the covenant and Jewish boys marrying Moabite girls, we know that God is never finished. It's never too late to turn back to him and live his way. So what happens next? Well, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, they're grieving and alone or still in Moab, but somehow Naomi gets word that there is bread back in the house of bread. The famine is over. So she and her daughters-in-law prepare to return home. Partway there though, Naomi seems to have a change of heart and tells Orpah and Ruth to turn back, go home to their people. Naomi has found enough faith to go home, but she doesn't know what is waiting there for her. She doesn't have a safety net. And these Moabite women would surely be shunned at best, and at worst they would lose their lives. She tells them to turn around and go back to their people. And I think it was an act of love and kindness. I think she was trying to give them everything that she wanted them to have that she knew they could only have if they stayed with their people. One of the things that I think is important is Naomi's name meant pleasant, but she even says in the text when she does return home for people to call her a different name, to call her Mara because she believed that God's hand had turned from her. She wanted to give them a chance. Ruth 1, 14 through 15 says this. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people. Orpah meant back of the neck. Goodbye. Uh, Back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Ruth's response in this moment is one of the most decisive moments in world history, I would contend. And I realize that's a really big statement to make because there are a few women in Moab having a hard time. How could that become one of the most decisive moments in history? I'm going to tell you. Jesus is born in the city of Bethlehem because it's called the city of David, his ancestor. It's called the city of David because King David was born in Bethlehem. King David was born in Bethlehem because... His father, Jesse, was born in Bethlehem. Jesse was born in Bethlehem because his father, Obed, was born in Bethlehem. Obed was born in Bethlehem because Ruth and Boaz had Obed in Bethlehem because Ruth said to her mother-in-law, wherever you go, I will go. Let's take a look. Ruth 1, 16 through 18 says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging. I feel like if you're a parent, we've probably all felt this before, where you're like, you know what, fine, let's just go. (laughs) Wear those shoes, wear that outfit. But I want to take a moment to talk about the commitment that Ruth is making, because this is not a, I hope that it turns out okay, or your God could become my God. The way, the language that Ruth is using here is covenant language. It's a spiritual commitment. The word she uses for God is Yahweh, which at that time would have only been used at the deepest level of commitment and belief and understanding of who he is. It's powerful. And The moment reminds me of an encounter that Jesus has in the New Testament with a rich young ruler, Matthew 19, 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus shares that you must keep all the commandments and he lists them out. And the young man replies and says, well, I do all of that, cool, what else? And then Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor and you will have your treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. The rich young ruler did not do what Ruth did. He had too much and chose not to follow God. Elimelech did not do what Ruth did. He didn't have enough and wouldn't stay and trust God. God gets right to the heart of our Moabs, doesn't he? For the rich young ruler, it was wealth, so Jesus calls him out. For Elimelech, it was trust in God's provision for his family. Ruth did what these two others did not. She gave up everything to follow God. She didn't know what the future held, but she knew that staying in Moab would keep her from following the one true God. And Ruth's response here not only shows a depth of commitment to the Lord, but it also shows us the power of discipleship. We are always showing people who Jesus is. We don't know when it happened, but Ruth put her faith in the God of Israel— In this moment, we see Naomi bitter and wounded, and who wouldn't be? But clearly, she had an enormous impact in helping Ruth know who God was. Naomi would have been the most visible representation of God to Ruth. And the faith of Naomi helps Ruth know and understand God herself. And Ruth's faith in God is what helps meet and comfort Naomi in this time of grief and bitterness. Don't ever underestimate the impact that your faith has on others, and also the power of letting other people's faith impact you, the way you speak to people, the way you speak about people, how you treat others, the time you take to listen and lean in, the grace you give, the way you live, the way you example Jesus' discipleship. But pay attention to the way that Naomi was clearly a minister to Ruth but also allowed herself to be ministered by Ruth. As believers, we're always showing people who Jesus is. So just a question as we continue to go, how are you doing at giving and receiving the message of Jesus? One, because I know we're in South Dakota and I know that South Dakotans are, um, I'm one now, so I'm gonna just say, I think we're kind of stubborn. And I have found that in the 15 years I've been here, boy, am I way more stubborn than when I got here and I like it. But I think sometimes In all areas of our lives, but especially in the way that we follow the Lord in that spiritual um, element of who we are, which really is all of who we are. It can often be easy to give and give and give and teach other people about God, but not really take a lot of teaching. Or the opposite, where we want to take it all in, but we don't really make the time or give the energy or effort to go and bring that to other people that need it. And a healthy, Relationship with the Lord involves both simultaneously. You are taking in and being ministered to, and you are going and making disciples and helping people know about God. How are you doing at that? I think both Ruth and Naomi teach us a lot here. Again, so many powerful lessons that we could learn about here and talk about, but I want to go a little further into the story for the second one. So Ruth and Naomi make it to Bethlehem. They arrive just at the start of barley season, and again, I come from the country, so I would love to talk all about barley and agronomy to you, but we're not going to do that. Barley would have been the crop of the poor, though. And with very little, Ruth goes out every day and works in the fields and gleans enough so that she and Naomi have food to eat. Long story short, she's introduced to Boaz. He is related to Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and there's a whole lot of important context for that, but again, I want you to see how he speaks to her in Ruth 2.11, she asks Boaz why he is being so kind to her, a foreigner, and this is what he says. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Next, in Ruth 3.11, he shows us again by saying, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz's words about Ruth here show the power of integrity. And I would contend that integrity is a spiritual superpower. What is it? Integrity is a quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. It's being who you say you are, it's doing what you'll say, what you say you'll do. And I think we all crave that. And I hear so often people go, well, this world is just turning into this or that. It's so valuable that we're reconciling with ourselves whether or not we're walking this out too. We, we hope for it from others. Are we giving it to the world? Ruth doesn't just make a promise to Naomi on that road. She walks that commitment out every single day. She is the epitome of Romans 12, one through two. It says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Ruth and Naomi are all of us, and I think we're a lot like them. We each have stories of, of sin and doubt and hard situations. They show us the value of discipleship and integrity in the daily choices that build a lifetime story of faith. Walking back towards him, out of the bondage of sin together. And just like them, God has commissioned each one of us right now for this world, but how do we do it? How do we show up when life feels hard and uncertain? Or as Beau would say, it's scary outside. And sometimes I agree, he usually says that when it's storming, but I think sometimes, I think that every day when I walk out, it's scary out there. How do we go out and show people who God is um, in the midst of that? How do we, like Naomi, help people learn so much about God that they'd walk away from the things that don't honor him, like Ruth did. How do we, like Ruth, demonstrate such a depth of integrity that the people around us would pay attention and see God at work in us? I think we start small. I think most good things start small, one step at a time. Uh, I wanted to show you this. Do you guys see this? Do you know what it is? Vitamins! They have, like, a really interesting smell. Like, you smell them before you... Ugh, okay. Um, I bought them because they were the cutest ones in the store. Uh, I turned 40 last October, which means I'm about to be 41. It's fine. Um, I've been trying to catch up on all these here's who I am now things, like um, taking vitamins and stretching my hips and my knees. I don't even know if I'm doing it right, but I'm trying. Um, I'm trying to eat dinner before 5 p.m. and watching MASH reruns. I'm just kidding on some of those. I do watch M.A.S.H., Uh, but the vitamins are a thing, and I bought them, um, one, because I felt like I needed them, and two, because they um, were the cutest ones on the shelf. Uh, This isn't the first bottle of vitamins I've owned, though. It will be the first bottle of vitamins I finish, though, I hope, because I don't know about you, but it's really easy on day one, and day two, and day three, and maybe even day four, take them, like open them and go, oh yeah, and take them and then move on, right? These are gummies, so they even like linger a bit. But the bottle was cute. But then on day five or six, you sleep in, or this week I went on a trip and I forgot them. Oops, I haven't even taken them today, even though I've been holding them for hours. You just get out of, you get out of rhythm, right? Eventually, this bottle will probably just sit on the bathroom counter, and eventually when I'm cleaning, I'll move it and put it away and forget that I have vitamins. I think that's the culture we live in today. It's easier to be fancy than faithful. It's easier to chase the easy or the big than to do the work. Easier to have all the right words without the refining work. Easier to call out the walks of other people instead of looking at ourselves and asking God, what are the things you could stand to change in me? It's one thing to have a pretty package. It's another thing to do the work, to be consistent within a culture that wants instantaneous results. Eugene Peterson has a quote. It says, one aspect that is harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. It's not difficult to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It's terrifically difficult to sustain that interest. And that quote, friends, was from the 1980s when we actually did have 30-second attention spans. You know the wild thing about vitamins? They don't work right away. Uh, You have to take them every day because the change comes from the inside out. It sometimes takes up to 90 days for them to even take effect. How exhausting is that? It's the long haul, it's a process. It's gotta take place on the inside. Maybe it's not the vitamins for you. Maybe it's inviting people around you to help you get out of a Moab. Maybe it's being part of a group of people that helps somebody else get out of theirs. Maybe it's getting back into the routine of attending church regularly, or serving together, or joining a group. Getting people around you to walk life out with. Maybe it's calling a friend after a hard long day instead of just sitting with drinks or going to the store and spending all of your money just to cope with whatever's going on, maybe it's making time every day to pray and read the Bible, whatever it is. I pray that you would start taking steps towards it today because when we get dedicated to the work right in front of us, we realize that life is just a bunch of small steps that gets bigger when we put it all together. I think when you read the book of Ruth, those 85 verses in four chapters, it's easy to fast forward to the ending. We know the ending, right? We know what happens. So as we're reading it, we're thinking it with that in mind. But the story of Ruth, for Ruth, was lived minute by minute, day by day, decision by decision, without the end in sight, but trust in God, one at a time. It's a testimony of how small, consistent, faithful decisions can like turn a life into something incredible when it's marked by discipleship and integrity. So how does it end? Uh, Eventually, Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son and become people in the family tree of Jesus. There's a hugely powerful story there about God's goodness and the promise of Jesus written all over it. Please go study it. And I would have coffee with you if you want to talk about it. I would have coffee anytime. Okay, I'm just going to That's the last time I'll say it. Um, These two lessons, though, that Naomi and Ruth show us on the road to Bethlehem and in a field in Bethlehem are so powerful. Live as though every moment you are showing people who Jesus is and live with integrity. Be who you say you are. This may require you to move away from some things and towards other things, but be patient. Invite others to walk with you. Trust God and watch what he does one step at a time. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for these friends who are listening. God, I thank you for the way that you have surely um, rescued us from Moabs in the past, Lord. Today, I just feel really pressed to pray for people who are either in the midst of something that feels um, insurmountable, or maybe even those who are walking with people who are walking through things that feel insurmountable. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I just pray that you would... um, Meet them right now in this moment and help them know that you see them and you love them. That just like Ruth and Naomi, Lord, uh, in their culture and at that time, they would have felt invisible. They would have been invisible, God. But you are the God that sees. Nothing is wasted. And we just thank you so much for that. Father, I pray that you would give people the courage to invite others in. I pray that you would give us the courage to go into the lives of others, Lord, and just be present and bring your hope and your love. We can't do it alone. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.